Uh, well, good to be here with you today, church. I feel like I owe Robert a little bit of an apology. I don't know how much attention people pay to like the lyrics and when there's a mess up in the lyrics, um, but there's been a mess up in that song, Only a Holy God, all month. It has been incorrect from the way Robert sings it. Last week, I went and changed it to where instead of invites, it says invited, the way Robert sings it. And apparently this week, Robert also decided, I'll just match the congregation. So he also changed it. So just so you all know, I have been the one that's been wrong. It's not Robert. So sorry about that, Robert. But um, hopefully we can get on the same page when we sing it again next time. Um, so this is week number two of our Lent sermon series as we're making our way through the book of Colossians. Uh, Matt preached for us last week. He got us started um, with just a, an absolutely magnificent text on uh, Jesus Christ and the person and work of Jesus. And uh, so Matt introduced us well, I think, to, to the theme of our, um, of our Lent series, which is Lord of All, as the, uh, as the graphic indicates. So as we move today, we're going to move from, uh, from looking at uh, what Paul has now described as just this, this beautiful picture of, of Christ and his preeminence and, uh, and the glory of God over all creation uh, and the, uh, the, the, um, the worship that is due Christ because of his place uh, over all things. So we move now into our next, uh, next passage, which is going to be Colossians chapter 1, 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. And I've entitled my sermon this week, uh, Letter from a Roman Jail. Letter from a Roman Jail. You might understand the reference here um, to the the letter written by Martin Luther King Jr. that he wrote and now has um, been widely distributed, uh, read in many classrooms and many settings, letter from a Birmingham jail, where Martin Luther King Jr. was writing this letter uh, to kind of defend his, his work in the civil rights um, movement, to defend what he had been doing. Um, and he, he's writing it from jail, where he has now been, been uh, imprisoned for his um, his work in the civil rights movement, and he's writing to uh, to fellow pastors, fellow uh, workers in the in the cause for for civil rights to defend his work, but also to encourage, to uh, commend those who are acting out of such such courage. And what's what's interesting about, and I think fascinating and and very commendable about the letter that that Martin Luther King Jr. writes is the fact that he writes this letter. And he doesn't really complain about his lot that he's been dealt. Surely he's not happy about being in jail. But, uh, but the focus of the letter is not on him, but rather on his concern for, uh, for his fellow workers in this, in this mission of, of civil rights and his fellow pastors, fellow workers in his cause. And as I was reading this text this week and, and reading from the understanding that when Paul writes the letter to the Colossian church, he's writing from imprisonment. Now he's not in an actual prison cell or, or jail cell, he is under house arrest, but he, he is writing from a, a state of being incarcerated, much like Martin Luther King Jr. was. And in a very similar way, he is writing in a way uh, that as you read this, this passage, other than a few kind of hints that he gives, you wouldn't even know that Paul is, is uh, in jail right now, right? His focus, his emphasis in writing this letter is not on himself, is not on uh, 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 it's not an opportunity for him to complain or to air his grievances against the Roman authorities who have um, kind of held him captive in Rome, 
but rather Paul writes this letter out of concern for the church in Colossae, out of concern for their health, for their, their well-being, uh, out of concern especially that he has heard of a, of a false teaching that has risen up in the church. And so Paul is writing, in addition to defend against uh, false teaching and heresy that is springing up in the church. So I hope that as we see, though, as we read this text, my hope is that we see not only uh, Paul here as he discusses his ministry, not only Paul's ministry and his work, but also uh, Paul's heart and his desire for the church at Colossae uh, for their maturity. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be starting chapter 1, verse 24, making our way down through chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim, warning everyone, excuse me, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your word here today, I pray that we would do so, um, Lord, expectantly, uh, excited to hear uh, from the, the mouth of the creator, Lord, as you have given us your word. But Lord, also um, that we come to this, this passage today, we come to your word uh, humbly, uh, knowing that we uh, do not fully understand all things, but we come looking for, uh, for understanding, for wisdom. We come um, seeking to know the truth and to know it uh, rightly as you have revealed it in your word. So I pray that that would be the case for us today, uh, that you would bless us and challenge us through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So my main idea for today as we make our way through this passage in Colossians is that all that we need for Christian maturity is found in Christ and results in steadfast faith in him. All that we need for Christian matur maturity is found in Christ and results in steadfast faith in him. So the majority of our text here today uh, is dealing with the Apostle Paul's ministry and his concern uh, for the church at Colossae. But I hope as we, like I said, as we make our way through our text today, my hope is that we can see that really this main idea that I have just outlined is at the heart of why Paul is writing this letter, specifically why he is, he is describing his ministry to them and his heart and his concern for the church at Colossae. Because as we'll see throughout our text, we see Paul commending to the Colossian church, commending to them 
his heart, his desire for them, not just his desire to see them, not just his desire to know them, but his desire that they would be mature in Christ and steadfast. So we start with point number one, and we're kind of going to bounce around through the text looking at, at different verses here and there in the text. But we start with point number one as we look at Paul's ministry to the church, Paul's ministry to the church. Now, we, we know from Paul's life, if you know anything about Paul's life, if you read even the book of Acts, you'll know that Paul's ministry was by no means a picnic, right? He was, he was suffered under countless different events. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was, uh, suffered all kinds of persecutions of various kinds. He, uh, even as he's writing this letter, he was under house arrest, right? Uh, he was suffering as we are reading this letter. He is writing it from uh, being incarcerated. And we see that in this text as well. We see Paul's struggle, his afflictions, his pain, his toil coming out through this passage. And what's amazing to me as Paul here is describing his ministry, and as we, we know and we see in this text, Paul struggles, he toils, he, he goes through hardships. How does Paul start this passage as he is relating his ministry to the church? The first three words, he says, now I rejoice. Paul says right away that I rejoice in my sufferings. How can this be? How can it be that Paul is able to rejoice in his suffering? The reason Paul is able to rejoice in his suffering, as we'll see, is because he's suffering for the name and the sake of Jesus Christ in his church. He's suffering, he's toiling for the sake of of the glory of one greater than himself. In verse 25, he calls himself, or he says that uh, he became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to him for us. Paul recognizes himself not as the one who has all authority. Paul recognizes his ministry not as something that is for him or for his own glory, but rather Paul recognizes that his suffering, his toiling, is for the sake of the glory of one greater than himself. This is what it means to be a steward. I can't think of a, of a steward or, or of stewardship without thinking of, uh, of Denethor from Lord of the Rings. Lord Denethor, who, uh, if you're unfamiliar with Lord of the Rings, Lord Denethor was the steward of Gondor. The king of Gondor had been gone for many, many years, and it had been under the care of stewardship. And what it means to be the steward, so in in his case, he was the steward of Gondor, meaning that he was not the king. Authority was not uh, his alone. He didn't actually bear the weight of rule uh, in all of its fullness, but rather he was given authority to rule, to govern, by one who was greater than him. The authority belongs to the king, but for for Denethor, who as we know became... um, ended up being not a very good steward. Um, But for Denethor, he did not have authority in and of himself, but rather he had authority that was granted to him. He was working for the sake, for the authority, for the glory of another, for someone higher than him, namely the king. And the same is true with us. The same is true uh, with Paul in this passage. He recognizes that he can rejoice even in his sufferings, even in his toil, even in his pain, because he is doing so for the glory of one far greater than himself. I believe that obedience to God, service to him, will lead to the greatest amount of joy, even if it causes us great hardship. And it oftentimes will. 
It oftentimes will mean that as a believer, we will suffer for the sake of Christ, right? We see this all through the New Testament, and yet we also see through the New Testament that we can find joy and that we can rejoice in our suffering. James chapter one, verse two says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Paul in Romans five, three through five says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Or consider the apostles in Acts chapter five who were brought in by the, the Jewish leaders and uh, were questioned and were about to be killed but were ultimately let go. Acts chapter five, we read this. It says, when they had called them in, or when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. That's absolutely amazing to me. I love that. These guys were brought in, were beaten and charged never to speak the name of Jesus again, and then sent out. And what did they do? They were like high-fiving each other. Like, yeah, we got to suffer for the name of Christ. Like, what a worthy thing to be counted of. They counted it to be a joy, uh, an honor to be able to suffer for the name of Christ, and they pressed forward. So I want to take a moment here to, to look at, uh, at verse 24 a little more closely, uh, because verse 24, as Paul is, is uh, describing his ministry in verses 24 and 25 and, and kind of pouring out his heart, I think verse 24 is one of those verses that, um, if you're like me, I've read this passage many times, probably, probably hundreds of times I've read these words in Colossians. And yet, as can oftentimes happen to us as we read God's word, when we begin to really dive in and, and study something, like I did as I began to prepare for this sermon, I was like blown away by what I read in verse 24. I'm gonna read it for you. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul says he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What on earth is he saying there? When I first read this, I was a little taken aback, like what on earth am I gonna do with this passage? Because it, it sounds to me, and, and I think maybe it does to you too, I don't know, that Paul is saying that Christ's work, his affliction, his suffering wasn't enough. But it, it was lacking, as he says. Therefore, I am going to add something to it to where it will be good to where it will be complete, to where it will be accomplished. It sounds like Paul is saying that Christ's atonement wasn't enough, that, that it didn't work until Paul added what he is adding to it. Now, I, I hope you know, and I, I, I think we all should, if we are familiar with the New Testament, that that's not what at all was Paul is saying. Uh, Paul is in no way here trying to say that, that he has contributed in some way to an incomplete atoning work of Christ, by no means. What we can say uh, is that uh, Paul is making the point that, that his suffering, his affliction, is clearly 
serving a great purpose with regards to God's mission, God's work of redemption. And uh, theologians pretty well across the board agree that, that the afflictions, the suffering that Paul is talking about is, is not the same as the sufferings, the afflictions of Christ, but is of a, of a different nature. The filling up of what is lacking in Christ's affliction has nothing to do with his atoning work. Christ's work on the cross is complete and it is all that is needed to purchase redemption for the people of God. Nothing needs to be added to Christ's work of redemption. It is full, it is complete, it is perfect. That's why he says on the cross, it is finished. No more sacrifices need to be made. The ultimate sacrifice has been paid, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Paul's suffering here then his work is of a qualitatively different kind than that of Christ. His suffering is, is of a different kind than Christ, meaning that his suffering is not atoning. It is not a suffering that is leading to forgiveness of sins, atonement for the people of God. That has been accomplished. And I think, I think there are different uh, explanations offered for what Paul is meaning here, but I think the most plausible ex- explanation of Paul's suffering um, of it filling up what is lacking in Christ, is that Paul's suffering, his ministry, was the necessary means that God used to proclaim the good news of Christ's atonement to the Gentiles in order to extend the borders of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. In other words, the atonement, the work of God, the, the kingdom of God was established, was built upon, the uh, redemption was accomplished in Christ Jesus, And now Paul is the means by which God has spread this to the Gentiles and beyond, to the ends of the earth. This is why Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, right? So Christ accomplished, Paul proclaimed, and both suffered in order to fulfill God's plan of redemption. God uses Paul in order to accomplish his work of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Does that make sense? That is what Paul is talking about here, I think. I don't think Paul is, is, is offering that he has somehow completed the work that Christ failed to complete, but rather that he has another part in this plan of, of God's building a kingdom for himself, uh, in fact, an integral part uh, in order to spread the kingdom to the ends of the earth. That's Paul's role. That's what he has done. That's what he is working to accomplish uh, for God in Christ. And here's something amazing to realize. Is that how is Paul going to fulfill his mission among the Gentiles? How is Paul carrying out this task that he has been given, this ministry that he has been called to, this stewardship? The goal of Paul's ministry, though not an easy one, he suffers, he, he toils. It's not an easy one, but in a certain way, it is kind of a simple one. We see at the end of verse 25, he said, to make the word of God fully known. In other words, to preach God's word, to preach the gospel. His ministry was to preach the gospel, to make it known and to make it fully known. This was the task that Paul has been given. The emphasis on preaching the gospel. And we see as we continue on in verse five, that Paul understands his ministry as being divinely appointed by God And therefore, it will be accomplished. Look at the confidence with which Paul speaks in verse five. 
He says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is confident that the task that God has given him, he is a means that God is using, an instrument to be used, and that because God is doing the work, it will be accomplished in the life of the Colossian church. He is confident in that. He rejoices to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. So this is Paul's ministry, Paul's ministry to the Colossian church and, uh, and beyond. And in point number two, we look and we see uh, a picture into Paul's concern, Paul's heart for the church. In verses 29 of chapter one, and then chapter two, verse one, we see this. For this toil, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. This is Paul's heart for the Colossian church. Paul expresses a great deal, again, of agony, of struggling for the Colossian church. He toils, he says. He he describes his suffering, his struggling. He says, how great a struggle in verse one. We see here that Paul's heart for the Colossian church is, is, is stretched to the point that he is so concerned about them that it is causing him anguish, causing him to toil, causing him to work. But notice in verse 29 where Paul gains his strength from. This is a fascinating language in in verse 29, and we might miss it if we read it too quick as well. He says, for this I toil, and then he says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. By what power is Paul working? By what power is Paul toiling and striving and struggling? By the power of Christ working in him, right? Paul is empowered by the Holy Spirit and he recognizes fully that his ability to do this task is not in and of himself. His heart for the Colossian church is not motivated only by himself, but rather his strength, his heart, his struggle, his effort comes from the, from the Holy Spirit working through him. His strength is found in Christ. This is a great confidence, both to Paul and to us, knowing that we are not reliant on human strength. Yeah, Paul in his ministry is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, but by what power is he doing it? He's doing it by the power of Christ. We don't have to worry about whether Paul accomplished the task or whether he will, because even though Paul is the means being used, Christ is the one doing the work. That's why if I were if I were the one naming these sections, uh, if ESV contacted me and said, we're, we're considering making some revisions on the headings of our passages, I would tell them that this one needs to be changed from Paul's ministry to the church to God's ministry to the church by the means of Paul. Because ultimately, that's really what, what is happening here, and that's what Paul's making clear, is that he is merely an instrument being used by God, that it is God's energy, that it is God's strength, that is working within him in order to produce firmness of faith in the lives of the Colossian church. Paul's concern for them is even more significant when you consider the fact that Paul's never been to this church. This was a church planted by, I believe, Epaphras. It was not even planted by Paul. It was planted by someone who was uh, uh, Paul's uh, child in the faith, but Paul has never even been to the Colossian church. We see this in verse one. He said, uh, 
I, I want you, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul has never even met these people, at least not most of them. And yet he has such a great concern for them that he is toiling, that he is in agony, that he is in anguish for their sake and for his concern for their well-being. And this has to beg the question of how much do we care about the maturity of our fellow church members? Paul is talking about people here who he's never met his entire life. We sit in a room with, with brothers and sisters in Christ and worship every single week. We are in each other's lives, many of us on a daily basis. And yet, how often do we consider, do we concern ourselves with the spiritual welfare of our brothers and sisters in Christ? How easy is it for us to shrug it off and say, well, hopefully they're okay. I don't know. I'll just focus on me right now. This has to beg the question. If Paul felt such weight for these brothers and sisters who he had never even met with, should we not feel greater sense of concern for our fellow church members? And I think perhaps even worse, Paul is feeling such great concern for these people he's never met. And I think Paul is showing more concern for them than we often show for our own maturity, for our own spiritual growth in Christ. How concerned are we whether or not we are maturing, whether or not we are growing in the knowledge of Christ Jesus? These are challenging questions. And Paul has already explained in verse 25 that the means by which the mission of God is accomplished, how the church is going to be matured, is through the teaching of God's word, preaching, teaching, the reading of God's word, the reading of Paul's words that he has penned for us. It is this book. The teaching, the reading, the understanding of this book is what will lead to Christian maturity. We have it. We have access to all that we need in order to be mature in Christ Jesus. Access to spiritual maturity has been granted to us, and yet how often do we take advantage of it? How concerned are we really with our own maturity, with our own growth, our own, our own understanding of Christ? Even what Matt and Robert and myself do up here on a weekly basis, the preaching of God's word, this is the teaching of God's word. This is a means by which God matures his people. These are God-ordained means of growth and maturity, the reading of God's word, sitting under the teaching, the preaching of God's word, and yet they are forsaken by so many. And we all know the, the, the guy or the gal who says, I don't need to go to church and hear a preacher uh, because I can worship in a deer stand or I can worship out uh, in a boat or while camping or whatever, X, Y, or Z. I can worship at home with my own uh, self and my own time of spirituality. And those are like the easy examples, right? To say, oh yeah, clearly they're wrong. But I'm gonna be honest with you, my concern, I'm, I worry right now about many churches and, and many in the church as we kind of, hopefully, Lord willing, are transitioning out of this time of COVID-19. Because uh, although this has opened up many sort of areas and, and shortcomings in the church and it has created many challenges for the church and for Christians, one of my biggest concerns has been the devalue on the sitting under the teaching of God's word. The devaluing of the gathered church. And I'm not saying that, that maybe there's not good reason to 
to postpone a service or to make accommodations or this or that. But I am saying that I think there are far too many people in the Christian church today, especially the Western church, that have come to the conclusion it is not that big a deal to miss church. I think one of the saddest conclusions that has been come to by many in America today is that church is a non-essential. But that's the conclusion that many have come to, whether authorities or in many cases, people in their own conclusions, in their own hearts, have concluded that church is non-essential. I don't need to go. For the sake of my safety, for the sake of security, for the sake of, of whatever, I say church is non-essential. And I think, I, I think that it is going to be a challenge for, uh, for us as the people of God to recover from this mindset, to get back to the teaching of God's word, the gathering of saints. Because I know, I, I know that you can hear this sermon. People at home right now are likely hearing this sermon as I am preaching it. And I know that you can hear it and that you can be encouraged and you can be challenged. But we cannot forsake the gathered church. This is what God has called us to. And this is my, my concern, but also my, my hope and my prayer is that I think the church will be somewhat purified through this time. I think certainly there will be people who uh, during this time will prove themselves to have never been in the faith and many probably will never come back to church again after seeing the fact that they don't, don't really think they're missing anything. But my hope is that we as a church will maintain a high value on the gathering together of believers and the preaching of God's word. It is by this, by the intake, the teaching, the reading of God's word that we will become mature in Christ. Point number three, we see in, these, in this passage a glimpse of exactly what is at stake. In chapter one, verse 28, Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In chapter two, verse two, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In Paul's mind, what is at stake here is nothing less than the growth, the maturity of the church. Their encouragement, their unity, their being knit together, their knowledge of Christ, this is what is at stake. The answer to the question of why, with regards to Paul's ministry, why his suffering, why his toil, are found in this text. The question of why is, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ, so that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The measure of Christian maturity is certainly not limited to knowledge, right? Many times though, in, especially in the Western church context, Knowledge and wisdom are devalued and emotions and feelings reign supreme. Knowledge and feelings are, are cast aside as not that important, don't really matter that much. I'll never forget being in a Bible study and hearing someone say, whenever I was in high school, uh, someone who I knew and, and loved and, and respected, saying, why are we talking about this stuff? Doesn't it just matter that we know Jesus? Doesn't it matter that he died on the cross? Isn't that all we need to know? And yes, for the sake of salvation, 
All we need to do is believe in Jesus Christ, his atoning work on the cross, for our sake, on our behalf, for the forgiveness of our sins. Repentance and faith. Yes, to be in Christ, that is all that is necessary. But to grow in Christian maturity and spiritual maturity and knowledge is much more than that. There are other markers of maturity, such as purity, discipline, compassion. But as we see from our passage here today, that spiritual maturity is certainly not less than knowledge and wisdom. In fact, it's the emphasis that Paul is, is especially putting here is on knowledge and wisdom that they are necessary in order to keep us from false doctrine, in order to protect us from being tossed to and fro by every bad doctrine that comes our way. As he says also in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 14, Paul says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul is saying that in order to protect yourself against false teaching, against bad doctrines, against being just like a, a life raft out in the middle of the ocean going wherever the waves are taking it, it's necessary that we grow in the knowledge of Christ and in maturity. And realize also who it is that should be growing in knowledge and wisdom in Christ. Who is it? Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Knowledge of spiritual things, theology, doctrine, the things of Christ are not to be limited to a select few in the church. It is not the task of the pastors and elders to know these things and not the church members. Nor is it the task of just men and not women. Nor is it the task of just those who do counseling versus those who don't do counseling. It is for all people. It is available to all and it is necessary for all people to grow in the maturity of Christ. If you want to, to, to guard yourself from false teaching, here is your answer. Point number four. The remedy to false teaching. The remedy to false teaching is to be taught Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the solution. To grow in the knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ. I think every single one of us in here wants that for ourselves, right? Every one of us wants to not fall into false doctrine, not to be deceived, as Paul says, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We all want that. But how many of us are spending time in God's word? How many of us are, are coming and paying attention to the teaching of God's word here or in growth group or otherwise? We say we want this, but then we do nothing to act upon it. We're like the person who says they really want to learn to play the piano, but then never play the piano, never get a book, never look up a, a YouTube video. Notice how points, Paul points the reader to Christ. And he makes some rather bold claims. 
he makes certain claims about Christ. He says in verses 27 and 28 that he is the mystery revealed to the saints. Christ, this is the mystery that was hidden for a time, right? The Old Testament believers, they did not know. They, they were looking forward to the promised Messiah, the one who would come, who would uh, be their ultimate king, the ultimate uh, redeemer, the one who would save them. But now that mystery has been revealed in Christ Jesus. Paul also says that he is the hope of glory. He is the hope of glory. If we are to be, as we read in our assurance, ultimately glorified in Christ Jesus, the process by which that's going to happen is not just an instantaneous process of sanctification. Sanctification is a lifelong process, one that begins at our conversion and continues until our glorification. He is the hope of glory for those who are in Christ. It kind of sounds like one of the most like, basic sermon points ever, right? The, the answer to the question, where can we find all wisdom, knowledge, and hope of glory? It's, it's the classic Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. In this case, the classic Sunday school answer is absolutely right. Jesus is where we find all wisdom and all knowledge and all hope. As we read in chapter 2, verse 3, in whom, that being Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So as I've already established, Paul is writing in, in a large part to combat false teaching that has arisen in the church. And that's the reason Paul is making this great emphasis on all wisdom, all knowledge, all understanding being found in Christ. Not only found in Christ, but made available to all. Because many of the false teachings of this time, and, and we don't know exactly what the heresy was that was being proclaimed in the Colossian church. Some people say it was Gnosticism, this plague upon the early church. Some people think it might have been like a form of Jewish mysticism. We don't know. But in virtually every false doctrine, every false system of religion, it starts with someone claiming that there is knowledge, wisdom, understanding to be found somewhere other than Christ. This is always where false teaching starts. Sometimes it comes from a form of a, of a vision that someone has. Sometimes it co comes in the form of an angel bringing some new gospel or new revelation. But always... It is, it is wisdom and truth and knowledge being found in someone other than Christ. And Paul is making clear to this church in, in Colossae who is now being attacked, being told there are other places to find knowledge. In fact, places that you need to find knowledge in order to truly be a follower of Christ, in order to truly be saved. And it's not in scripture, it's not in Christ, but it's in these other places. And Paul is writing to combat this and he says that all wisdom all understanding, all knowledge is found in Christ. Not only is it found in Christ, but it is made available to all who are in Christ. Not for an elite group, not for a select few who would, who would learn this secret knowledge, but it is found in Christ and available for all, and it is expected that all would grow in these things, would grow in Christ, in wisdom and knowledge and understanding in maturity. 
The point that Paul is making here is contrary to what these false teachers say. That true spiritual knowledge and wisdom are found in secret spiritual rituals or in visions or in any other source they might come up with. All treasures of spiritual wisdom and knowledge are found only in Christ and in his word. And it is available to all without exception. Unlike the claims of these false teachers, it is available to all in Christ Jesus. And the reason that we ought to be growing in maturity, growing in knowledge, growing in wisdom is because Paul makes clear that the people bringing false teaching, false doctrines, often has, have very convincing arguments. He says in verse four that they will delude you with plausible arguments. It's not nonsense. False doctrines are usually not made up of just some silly nonsense, but they make plausible arguments. In other words, the devil's not an idiot. He knows what people will hear and believe. He knows ways to deceive. And if it's true, what we said before, that all of us in here would say, we don't want to be deceived. We ought not to want to be deceived. We don't want to fall into false teaching, to false doctrine, to bad religion. Then what's the answer? Grow in Christ. Grow in maturity. And what does that entail? It means growing in knowledge and wisdom and understanding of Jesus Christ. And where do we do that? We do that in God's word the reading of God's word, the teaching of God's word, the study of God's word. I want to, to close with kind of a, a challenge, and it's a challenge that's been done before, but I still think that it, it sometimes is super helpful. I want us to try and imagine that, that Redeemer Fellowship Church is at the top of this letter. It doesn't say Colossians, it says Redeemer Fellowship Church, that our church is the recipient of this letter from a Roman jail. That when Paul writes, he is literally writing to us. He has heard of these things happening here and he is writing to us. So then we put ourselves in the place here where it says, where Paul says, we proclaim warning all of you at Redeemer Fellowship Church, teaching all of you at Redeemer Fellowship Church that we may present every one of you at Redeemer Fellowship Church mature in Christ. How, how ought we respond? And this is a worthwhile question because, yes, it does not say Redeemer Fellowship Church here. It says Colossians. But is it not written for all believers, for us? It is for us. Paul does want to warn us and teach us and to present us, those members of Redeemer Fellowship Church, all of us in here today, mature in Christ. Therefore, we ought to take this to heart. We ought to read this and challenge ourselves to say, how can I grow in the maturity of Christ? What's going to be entailed in that? Does it mean that I prioritize more the reading of the word of God? Yeah, probably. It might entail that I prioritize the teaching of God's word on a Sunday morning. I'm not laying down law here, but I am saying that when I am here and I'm listening to a sermon, I get way more out of the sermon when I'm writing and taking notes and physically learning. Maybe that's the solution. I would encourage everyone, if, if there's a way that you can increase your learning, your understanding of the word of God, do it. Whether that's taking notes, whether that's going back and listening to the sermon, whether that is, is setting aside specific time in, the, in your day to read God's word and to study God's word, we all ought to be doing that. We all want to be 
safe from false doctrine. Paul wants us to be. God wants us to be safe from false doctrine, and he has given us the way to do so. So take advantage. Do we truly want to be presented mature in Christ? That's what this boils down to. Do we actually want to be mature in Christ? If the answer to that question is yes, then the, then the solution is found in God's word alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come today again, Lord, just frankly, Lord, brokenhearted that we are not uh, as mature as we ought to be, as we want to be. Lord, I know that I am not as mature as I want to be. I know the struggle that it is for me uh, against the flesh to convince myself of the goodness, the rightness of reading God's word, of studying his word. Lord, I pray that you would increase in our hearts a desire, a thirst, and a hunger for God's word. That we would move on from spiritual milk as infants to meat, to whole food, that we would not desire to stay spiritual infants, but that we would desire to be mature in Christ Jesus. All of us, elder, member, deacon alike, man and woman alike, adult, child alike, that we would all desire to be presented at the end of all things, mature in Christ Jesus. Lord, save us from false doctrine. Help us not to fall into it and help us to take up the means by which you have given us in order to avoid it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. At this point in our service, we are going